My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Hey there, loyal friends and listeners. Aaron Odom here from Trident Theater. I want to take a moment to express my gratitude to all of you who have joined me on this journey for the last year and to state simply that today's episode marks one full year of bringing you theater history podcasts. Hopefully, you've been entertained. I'll try to avoid doing my best Russell Crowe impression here, but no promises. Are you not entertained? Okay, I I had to do it. Hopefully, you've learned a few things about this art form, and maybe we're a little closer to figuring out why we're still doing this after all these years. So here we are, a year in. I have a lot more to bring you in this new year, but in the spirit of variety, I'm going to be providing some new episode types that won't take up as much time as our regular episodes. The first that I'm going to pitch is the theater horror story. Oh, wait, let me try that again. The theater horror story. What I mean by this is, look, we can't always control what happens on stage or even off stage in a live theater event, and things may go a little awry or the wheels may fall off the production completely. Sometimes the audience knows, sometimes they don't. But these are the moments in which theater artists maintain that old adage, the show must go on. From props not working to unstoppable nosebleeds to literal crimes being committed, it all makes for some great listening. So the theater horror stories should be coming to you soon, but I also have some other ideas in mind, and I'll be fleshing those out soon as well. Now, speaking of which, I'm all for new ideas. So please feel free to reach out to Trident Theater on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm even building up on LinkedIn now under my name, Aaron Odom. Maybe there's something about theater you've always had a question about that you'd like answered. Maybe you'd like to know how some practice started or why certain things exist in the theater. I'm here to deep dive for you. That's very Kennedy. Can I try that again? I'm here to deep dive for you. Uh, Sorry, I can't help myself today. So remember, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or you can simply write me at Trident at tridenttheater.com. That's theater with an R-E at the end of it. Look in the episode description. I'm sure you'll see it. Finally, before we get into the episode, here's a bit of a pitch for you. If you have liked us this far, please go back to the platform where you picked up this podcast and rate us. And if you go that far, please write a review and let your provider know just how much you appreciate the content that we're bringing. I'll even give you some time to do it. I'll play a little music, and you can just switch over to your podcast platform, give us some stars, blurb a few words, and we'll get you back to the show by the end of the music, or some ads, or whatnot. So we'll catch you on the flip side of the music with today's episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. And again, 
Thank you so much for listening. Apocalypse, apocalypse, I said, why you want to show up now? Just when the heart of my life was getting good. I'll give you one more chance. Walk on out of the door, yeah. Get your ass to getting where the getting is good. My friends and listeners, this is Aaron Odom coming to you again from Sheridan, Wyoming and Trident Theater for another episode of Euripides, Humanities, a Theater History Podcast. I have a fantastic guest for you today. And in fact, who was supposed to be the guest on my last episode, number 25. And when uh, she unfortunately fell sick, we tried to reschedule. The sickness remained. But now we got her back. And I had to make her so jealous that we were talking about uh, Sir Anthony Schur, who she has seen live, and we'll probably talk about that. But, ladies and gentlemen, friends and listeners, my guest today from Seattle, Miss Lisa Vertel. Hello, Lisa! Why, hello. I love the way you said I fell sick, like I have consumption, like Lady of the Camellia. Very dramatic, and I'm into it. I'm here for my Victorian disease. Love in a time of cholera. Uh, <laughs> but I'm very glad that you're feeling better now. Uh, yes. It wasn't COVID. It was just it was just that run of the mill cold that we uh, are not on the lookout for anymore. <laughs> well, I know. Um, but um, and, and before that, it was actually kind of difficult to get you on here because you were a very busy person in the fall. So what uh, kept you busy? And uh, up in Seattle, we had uh, another guest on here a few episodes ago, and, and there are some things happening. There's some movement happening. But what did you have go on? Man, it really, uh, well, the show that I just did was called What We Were. Um, when I was performing uh, at the Ashland New Plays Festival, I think in 2017, uh, this play, What We Were, was one of the winning scripts, not the one I was in, but another one. And it, you know, when you see something and you just get this visceral, full body reaction to it, like you can Ooh. feel it in your soul. I mean, yes. for me, like one yeah. out of every 10 parts I get is like that. You know, the other ones I'm like, <laughs> I'll, I'll find my way but that one was like oh my god she's in me so it took me two years to find a company to produce it and then hmm. two we, we j had just done our first run through dream come true dream role dream part and we got shut down because of covid god uh. and uh but the company stuck by the script and stuck by the mm -hmm. thing we retained uh the whole cast except for one person Oh, and nice. We were able yeah. to put it up with a reduced, you know, 37 people and everyone in masks and stuff. But it was such a wonderful, like, and after a year of doing Zoom shows, you know? Oh, uh, yeah. Which yeah. I was grateful to have, but like, it kills me. It feels like some kind of horrible methadone because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You just can't feel it. Like, I'm, I'm trying to make eye contact with you, I'm trying to right. feel the moment, I'm trying to feel your breath. So I, you know, so we're in tune with each other. I'm trying to feel where the audience is. And it's just like this, you know, shouting out into the cyber void. But anyway, mm -hmm. yeah. that's what and I did. I did that. And then 
just before that, I played so far out of my wheelhouse. Haha, ha, not <laughs> the Queen of Hearts in mm. Alice in Wonderland in the parks. I did uh, see that on your on your social meds. That was cool. And may I quote the review? Probably the best line. Well, one of the best lines in a review I've ever had in my entire <laughs> life. This fine gentleman said, even the centuries old oaks that surround her cower before her towering narcissism. Yes. Ooh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was wow. like, I sent that to my mom. I'm like, aren't you glad you paid for my acting school? This is what's happening. <laughs> I know. Now, I, know. I remember you were in also in my very first show in Seattle. Oh, and I was. That's right. And we got this great glowing review from, uh, I think she was at the Times at the time. And, oh, Misha uh, Burson, probably. Yes, yes. And she gave this great review. Now it's 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 primarily a female centered cast. It's the three sisters, and you played the mother who had just passed away, who kind of was having conversations with one of the daughters. The uh, mom who was way too young, way too hot to be a mother to adult. I know, I know, but you had (laughs) you had such gravity that I did the thousand year oaks in the basement of that theater. Uh, kneeled at your feet but yeah they had this glowing review everybody was mentioned except for the two men I was one of them and well no 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 we did get a mention at the end but everybody had at least one or two paragraphs about them and then one note before the end says the men in supporting roles were every bit as good period (laughs) (laughs) and also these two guys were in at the end (laughs) Apparently, there were people with penises in the room. I don't know. I'm so sorry you didn't get your due. <laughs> I think we I think we got a Footlight Award for that for Best Ensemble or something. Oh, my God. Fantastic. I don't yeah. remember at all. There was a lot of bourbon between me and 2000, whatever that was. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I hear you. I hear you. So at this point... You've got something coming up towards the end of the year. We're finally able to take a little bit of a break from such a hectic schedule. So what's going on uh, coming up here? Well, I am a proud company member at Pony World Theater, and Mm. uh, they began as a generative ensemble, and the majority of the work they've done has been ensemble written and ensemble created. And uh, just sort of in the last two years that I've been part of it, we've been doing scripted shows, but this will be my first go around creating something from the ground up with them. And it is based on our playwright and his father's relationship and our town. Oh, those always go well together. Communication between each other about our town. And I, when he brought it up, I thought, Oh God. Okay. So I hate our town. (laughs) I, I have walked out of three productions. Once I said I had cramps, once I said I was on crutches, so I used that. I was like, my leg. And oh, no. When I said I got an emergency phone call, like, I cannot stand that place. When he brought up the idea, I was like, cool, 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 cool. Can't wait to spend a couple of months making it. <laughs> but it's going to be rad. I, I'm going to forward to it. And, oh, and awesome. the chance just to create something with people. Um and that's coming up, I think, in October, where we're starting work in uh, March of this oh, year. Oh, yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, that sounds like it's going to take some significant development. So that's yeah. cool. That's really cool. Like being there for something on the ground up and, and making it work. So um, 
I don't know how this seems to keep happening, Lisa, but in my initial interviews with my guests, for some reason, the last thing we talk about always seems to kind of relate to what we're going to talk about in the episode. How exciting. <laughs> so I think uh, I'll go ahead and just get right into the episode here today. <laughs> Now, I usually start with uh, a question here, and this might be actually fairly timely based on the project you have coming up and the one that you, you kind of brought to the stage in Seattle uh, here this fall. So the question I have for you is this. In the theater, have you ever done something for which you thought you deserved more credit? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you don't have to name names, but... <laughs> um. Um, pretty much, nah, that was going to say pretty much all the time. There's been a couple of times where I, you know, I mean, I have a pretty healthy sense of when I'm doing a good job and when I'm not, when I'm not. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when I'm like, wow, I'm killing it. And, you know, then I get good reviews. I'm like, okay, recognize. But there's been a few where I just thought like, am I insane? Am I not spectacular in this show? Like what? <laughs> Why is nobody recognizing it? <laughs> it yeah. It's just, we live in such a weird world where we're sort of dependent on, you know, the opinions of others. Oh, like, yeah. And I'm always like, I'm not reading the reviews. And then I always read the reviews. Right, it. right. Yeah. And, and I always say things like, you know, if you feel that connection with the audience, like you were alluding to uh, before, like, you know, in a Zoom world, it's so hard to get that person to person response. I mean, theater is a live event for a reason. Um, but I always appreciate knowing that I have affected the audience somehow. And for me, sometimes that's probably the best review. But you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, okay. All right. So I could say that this episode today is a follow-up to my very first episode, The Consequences of the Interregnum. But to be honest, it's not exactly. <laughs> it's more than anything, just kind of a reference point to start from. And I do have to give credit to another old friend from Seattle. I don't think you know him. But my friend Mike Hanrian tipped me off to this story. And to start, as soon as I started reading about it, I went... Oh my, okay, so there's more than just this one story. You kind of have to get the world around this. So Ooh, are you ready tell. to go here? Okay, all right. Spill it. So in order to start today, we have to enter the world of politics for just a moment. My favorite. Isn't that great? I mean, I it's one of those things that everybody can talk about all the time. Uh, not only that, we have to enter the world of late 17th century politics of British Crown and Parliament. <laughs> Such Sweet. a great icebreaker. <laughs> right? Oh my God. Let's do God. it. Aaron, I was so hoping you'd talk about that tonight. Uh, <laughs> it was like on my top three of like fingers crossed, you know? <laughs> now, I won't go too much into the details right away, and I'll try to stay more focused on theater, but at the end of the 17th century, the crown got tossed around a few times after the death of Charles II in 1685. But, as you may recall from my first episode, The Consequences of the Interregnum, as soon as Charles was reinstated to the throne in 1660, he wrote up letters patent to have two new acting companies established, one of which was managed by Thomas Killigrew, and the company came to be known as the King's Company. And they would perform at a new venue that Killigrew would have built. Drury Lane Theater. Which, 
also became known as the Theater Royal as the King's Company performed there. Now, I did ask you about this because you had mentioned that you had seen uh, the subject of my last episode, uh, Sir Tony Schur, who just recently passed away, but you had seen him when, when you were doing an internship in London. Is that right? I did. Um, I was at the Royal National Theater and See, there we I are. was in the year of our Lord, 1996. <laughs> and I cannot remember the name of the play. It was a mm-hmm. solo show about a painter. I can't remember. I'm going to have to look that go up. Damn do, it. A Goog- do a Google, but I just mm-hmm. remember being absolutely gobsmacked. And I mean, you know, I, I tried to stay as much in the story as possible, but then that that actor part of my brain was like, oh, did you see that transition? Did you see that? Right. Did you see that choice? Oh, did you see that? Like, I just couldn't. When you see someone that just has absolute mastery of their physical being, of their vocals. Of, yep. And it wasn't ever like, uh, what do I want? I want to use the word masturbatory, but. Um, I think I <laughs> no, no. I think that's perfectly logical because. Uh, oh God, we're making this an explicit episode, and um, this is simply metaphorical. But yes, you see, do see actors masturbate on stage. You do. It's often. like you see them just going like, Ooh, da, da, but he was so genuinely in it. I just, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, was... And I would see him in the cafeteria. And oh yeah, of course, that because she was doing a little night music that year. So oh yeah, sitting in the cafeteria. And I'd be like, there he goes. I'm like, don't freak, don't freak, be normal. Don't make a scene. (laughs) It was that guy. It was that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I wanted to hear about that. Cause like I've seen him in movies and stuff and I'm like, just on stage, he would be electric. Yeah. So good. So anyway, yeah, we're uh, talking about the Drury Lane Theater today a little bit. Okay. Now, the success of the Theater Royal waxed and waned through the remainder of the 17th century, so the end of the 1600s. The King's Company did inherit the works of the King's Men, the acting company that Shakespeare belonged to, and therefore were granted permission to stage the works of the Bard, among others. But Drury Lane soon became known for very talky drama. And I'll (laughs) remind you... (laughs) I'll remind you that Charles commissioned two companies to be established. The other company, run by William Davenant, known as the Duke's Company, established a home in the former tennis court at Lincoln's Inn Field. (laughs) Built a building right on it. Apparently nobody was playing tennis anymore. Which later became known as the Duke's Playhouse. Now, their draw was not so much the dialogue-heavy drama seen at the Theater Royal, but rather big spectacle shows. But of course, what I mean by this is that the Duke's company used fancy movable scenery pieces that would often catch audiences off guard. (laughs) So I'll also state that the prior area of theater celebrated in Britain was the Renaissance period, Shakespeare and his contemporaries, and scenic design was not much of a thought in those days. (laughs) (laughs) So for the British stage to suddenly have elements of scenic design, and not only that, things that could move from left to right and on and off stage. This was like introducing 3D to the movies. (laughs) Right, I mean, I can just imagine when people saw the first, like even the first moving picture, the first movie, and they were like, what devilry is this? (laughs) (laughs) My God, I can't stop watching. Right? (laughs) (laughs) 
Now, in fact, the Duke's Playhouse had the first proscenium arch in British theater. Oh my God. I, I know. Yeah. Now, most architectural designs were borrowed or modified from the Italian Renaissance and French neoclassical stages, which that's where spectacle was a pretty big deal, particularly third point perspective. So dimension. Oh, wow. Something is behind something else. And I can see that with the naked eye. I mean, that's a whole episode I could do on Italian yeah. design and the, and the lengths they went to in order to present scenic design with their point perspective. And it will be coming up, my listeners, I promise. But for now, just understand that this was like basically like the invention of Technicolor. <laughs> <laughs> now, sets could resemble more actual locations and audiences could be impressed more by the technical effects of a play rather than just the words. Oh. Mm-hmm, right. Then Ooh. we end up with Miss Saigon and a helicopter flying. A heli- yeah, <laughs> and everybody <laughs> goes... I, I had a friend once who never really did much with theater. And then somebody took her to New York and she goes, you know, I just never got into it. It wasn't my thing. I went to a Broadway play. I can't even remember the name of it. And I'm like, I'm listing names. She's like, you're not going to get me to guess it. I said, was there a chandelier involved? She said, yes. And it damn near fell on top of us. <laughs> well, no wonder she didn't like it. Sorry. No offense. <laughs> Yeah, uh, for those of you that didn't understand that, that was a Phantom the Opera dig, and I fully endorse it. Uh, <laughs> now, some of these technical theater elements were worked into the Theater Royal, but they were nowhere near what could be seen at the Duke's Playhouse. So, attendance waned somewhat. But in addition, the Theater Royal suffered further loss when the Great Summer Plague of 1665 shut down theater for 18 months. Hey, what? sound familiar? <laughs> what? I can't imagine a time when a sickness shut down the theater for 18 it months. sounds oh. terrible. <laughs> now, when it reopened in fall of 1666, it did little to improve the interior of the theater. They're just like, eh, they'll come back. And thus, the financial success of the company continued to dwindle. The building was not destroyed in the Great Fire of London of 1666, but it did burn down several years later in 1672. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I'm not. Are we laughing about a thing? <laughs> Do we know why? Because I hope it was like some like somebody messing around with a prop that wasn't theirs, and then they burned the theater down. I have a feeling you're absolutely right because it sounded to me in my research like. That was the only building that was hurt close by. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody might have been messing around with candles and hay backstage. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> However, the company began construction of a new building at a new location, which was completed in 1674. Oh, my God. My dogs are like bouncing all around me and trying to... Chewing so on cute. stuff. I mean, if you can hear them, the, the, there's a lot of squeaking of chewing on toys and stuff, but I think we're okay. <laughs> they just want to be part of the action, right? Exactly. Otherwise, they'd be barking at every little sound in the house. Okay, back to this. However, the company began construction of a new building at a new location, which was completed in 1674. But the cost of building a new space replacing all costumes and props, etc., caused the King's company to go pretty much bankrupt. Aww. I know. In 1682, the King's company cut its losses 
and merged with the Duke's company. Mm. And they became the United Company. Ooh. <laughs> How inventive. Mm-hmm. Now, mainly the failure of the King's Company was also due to Thomas Killigrew's mismanagement of the company. <laughs> it doesn't sound familiar. He was constantly at loggerheads with his actors or with playwrights and would often need to bribe them to remain in his charge. I cannot relate in any way, shape, or form, winkity, winkity. <laughs> I did not take any tips at all. <laughs> Nonetheless, he was removed from leadership of the company by his son Charles in 1677, years before the merger even happened. Now, the newly merged company practiced theater in the newly built Drury Lane beginning in 1682. Company went through a few more changes in management, but by the beginning of the 18th century, the company was run by Christopher Rich, who from all accounts that I could see, seemed to only be interested in making money and not really progressing the art. Ah. Uh, right? Uh, I love I mean, those guys. You know, that's, that's why we have like a Billy Joel jukebox musical that- Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. And thank you, Marquee Theater, for picking Beetlejuice up again when I'm, look, I know Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster will sell the Music Man at the Winter Garden, but that was not fair to kick them out. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, anyway. wait, what? Did yeah. Beetlejuice got kicked out for Hugh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the Marquee uh, Theater, where, where Tootsie was, like right before the pandemic, um, the Marquee Theater said, okay, Tootsie's over. Now we're putting Beetlejuice in there. So oh, the good, Be good, good. Beetlejuice okay. is back, and that guy is going to kill his voice, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'd appreciate it if you send him a little note. There we go. Hey, God, what's Helpful his name? I can't remember. Alex, Alex Brightman. Okay, there we go. <laughs> uh, so now, progressing the art was not something that probably would have happened too quickly anyway, as restoration audiences weren't really too interested in any plays that didn't deal with humorous sexual improprieties, mocking the poor and subjugating women. So <laughs> as long oh, as he's dear. doing that, as long as he's doing that, Rich was at least going to break even. Right. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, those roots run deep, right? I'm like, huh, that right? sounds vaguely familiar. <laughs> <laughs> so what am I doing again? Oh, I'm getting uh, torn down by men. Okay. No problem. <laughs> Now, however, <clears throat> here is where we'll veer back into politics for a little bit. Okay. After the death of King William III in 1702, Queen Anne ascended the throne. Now, there aren't a lot of politics that actually enter into the story we're going to tell by the end of this episode, but you need to understand a little bit about the life of Anne in order to get there. Okay? So, as I said before, the crown bounced around on top of a few heads after Charles II's death in 1685, including Anne's older sister, Mary, and her husband, William. You probably know them better as William and Mary. William and Mary. Yes, because William basically insisted that if his wife earned the crown by natural succession and bloodline, well, then it stands to reason that he should naturally be made king. Mm. <laughs> That's not how it works, I think. Uh, well, actually, it did. He was it crowned, did. and they ruled in tandem as King William and Queen Mary. William mm. and Mary, they are one. In fact, they basically deposed Anne and Mary's father, King James II and Sixth. Yes, that's correct. 
It has to do with James being the second king of Eng- second King James of England and the sixth James of Scotland. Oh dear. Okay. <sighs> so I mean these numbers. Okay. So anyway, William and Mary, they were pretty enterprising. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anne, however, was not. She had a few suitors as she would be the next in succession for the crown if her sister Mary and her husband William would pass. Eventually, she married Prince George, uh, uh, this is Anne, eventually Anne married Prince George of Denmark in 1683 when she was 18 years old and he was 20. So the two of them became quite a devoted couple and it was frequently noted in in records of history that they shared a bed while many royal couples did not. Whoa, naughty, naughty. Okay, okay, right? I mean, so so everybody's like, their dirty laundry is on display. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> now, however, their marriage did see quite a bit of strife despite their devotion to each other. I would suggest that their hardships only strengthened their relationship. So rather than going through a play-by-play of the hardships of Anne and George, I'll state it this way. When she ascended to the throne in 1702 upon the death of her brother-in-law, William, Anne and George were not able to produce an heir to the throne. Mm. As it happens, you know. But it wasn't for a lack of trying. <laughs> okay. <laughs> by, the time, by the time of Anne's coronation in April 1702, she had been pregnant 17 times. Oh. Once, with, once with twins. And while several of the pregnancies did result in births and the children lived for a little while... And did have several miscarriages or stillborn deaths. Oh my God, that's awful. 17 pregnancies, like maybe half of them. Like that's... actually, I know. I'm trying to rack out the amount of time. Like, <laughs> I'm not good at math, but I'm doing like nine months times seven plus all the other yeah. months. That's a lot of. And I think, okay, so in 1683, she was 18. And by 1702, she had gone to the throne, so less than 20 years, she'd had 17 pregnancies. Man, A for effort. Yeah, right? <laughs> Gold star? Yikes. Um, the children who did survive never even made it to double digits in age, except for one. William, who died at age 11 in 1700. Oh, man. So to say that Anna George had suffered heartache is pretty much an understatement. Yeah. So when Prince George died in 1708 from dropsy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know what, what is that? It sounds like a thing. It's, it's, that... it's now known as edema. It's when like the cavities of your body just start filling up with liquid. Oh. Yeah. He, he was sick like his entire life. He had like lifelong asthma and he was assigned to uh, like, he was assigned to the Admiralty, which is like oversees the Navy and stuff. And he like couldn't go to sea at all because he was always sick. Aww. Yeah. Um, so when he died in 1708 from dropsy, Anne was utterly devastated. It's yeah. said, it's said that she stayed by his side until he passed, kissing his face and hands, even as his last breath left his body. Aww. Yeah. Yeah, she was a sweetheart. Now, I could go into the official royal policy and procedure of the time for what happens in the event of a royal death and the mourning rituals that are supposed to take place. 
but that could probably take up the rest of this episode and I don't want to talk about that. (laughs) I will say that the official mourning period for Prince George was effectively two years in length. Whoa. (laughs) Like there were things that happened all the time to remember Prince George who died a long time ago. Within the few months after George died, Anne even had some friends with the best intentions advise her that she should marry again to protect her lineage. She didn't. In fact, she more or less took over the roles of her deceased husband and cast out those who made such suggestions. Ooh. (laughs) That's a pretty awesome flex, Anne. Yep, right? (laughs) No, George was the only man for me. Oh, boy. Lifelong celibacy. Um, so getting back to how this relates to theater (laughs) so prince george died october 28 1708 now i couldn't tell exactly why this happened but it just seemed that queen anne wanted the entire country to mourn along with her so official theatrical activity was shut down for at least six weeks to respect the mourning period If it has the name Royal on it, it quits now. And it wasn't until February 5th, 1709, that Drury Lane was able to open again with a production of Appius and Virginia, a play by an original play by literary critic, poet, and playwright, John Dennis. Suppose you haven't heard of John Dennis, have you? I've never heard of Mr. Dennis. Oh, well. Yes. Well, let me take a sidebar just to describe the character of John Dennis and the atmosphere in which he practiced. Dennis, as I said before, primarily came to be known as a critic when the field of literary criticism was somewhat new in Britain, so it didn't have a long established tradition upon which it could base its methodology. So beginning with the restoration and moving forward, there were loads of works written for the purpose of literary criticism as the critics worked to define art forms more distinctly. Okay. Now, John Dennis was educated formally at the Harrow School, and then for his university training, he studied at Cambridge, where he received his... (laughs) (laughs) Where he received his BA in 1679. He did continue towards his MA at Cambridge, but was removed in 1681. The records state that he was fined and expelled due to, quote, assault on another student... And it was suggested that the assault was done with a sword. Oh, okay. Aww. There are no other records of that. <laughs> Just like, well, John poked Timothy with a sword and Timothy squealed. Booted out of school. Get out! We don't appreciate that kind of behavior. Why is everybody such a snowflake? You do a little stabby stabby and it's like, now is the academic careers over? I mean, I can't even tell you how many people I've stabbed and they haven't blabbed about a thing. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Dennis moved to Trinity Hall College, another section of Cambridge, in 1683, and there he achieved his MA. Now, after that, he toured Europe for a number of months before returning to London to settle. He became involved in literary circles and was often seen in the company of and spoken about with other great dramatists like John Dryden, William Wycherley, and William Congreve, all playwrights, poets, and critics. Yes, he was in that circle. Uh, There was something I read, and I wanted to look into this more, I just didn't have time, but it said he became one of the favorite 
coffee house wits. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I already feel like he's a douchebag. Yeah, he's the guy at any any coffee house that just has his laptop. He's like, I'm working on something. I'm working right, on something. I feel important. like in the middle of a convoy, he'd be like, he'd be a well actually. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, wait, I heard that on Instagram today. What is the male version of a Karen? Because I like, I think I've talked to my boys about this at some point. I think they said it's a Skyler. Um, I've not heard that. Uh, I've, I've heard Chad. We've been calling Chad. Chads. Chad. Yeah, that Chad. works. I like that. I like that. So yeah, John Dennis, definitely a Chad. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, in regards to his criticism, Dennis combined neoclassical ideals with the concept of the sublime in literature. And I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to describe this sublime concept as he saw it, despite any blowback that I might get from people who know about more about the topic than I do. <laughs> <laughs> now, from what I understand, the concept of the sublime as, a, as an aesthetic quality is that a work of art should produce the same effect as a moving religious service. Okay, like the candlelight, uh, you know, service on Christmas Eve or something when everything's dark, everybody's singing Silent Night, and it's just a glorious little thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm thinking about like... Just some horrible basement 11 p.m. piece of crap that I did, like lifting someone up. Like it's, it, I'm like it's basically Handel's Messiah. You guys just don't get it. You don't understand, plebeians. <laughs> oh my god! Now his his theater, or his, uh, so in this whole thing, he's basically saying that the sublime should or like a, a piece of art should affect somebody in their soul on an emotional level, okay? So his theories went a little deeper to say that if any emotion were to be affected, it should produce the, it should produce the desired effect regardless if the emotion is positive or negative. Hmm. So, you know, it's kind of like beauty is attaching us to like the height of emotional whatever, but that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a good or a bad emotion. It's just emotion. So you feel the extreme of it. I've tried to explain this when I talk to people about why horror movies are necessary, why terror in the theater is a good thing, mm -hmm. because as far as I'm concerned, the theater is a place where we get to exercise emotions that we don't get to very frequently. So yeah, agreed. I mean, we, as performers and audience members get to have all kinds of emotional experiences that we would never, and that probably I would never want to have in real life outside. Like, right. do I want to cut a cop's ear off in real life? <laughs> I mean, maybe, I don't know, but I wouldn't do it. <laughs> you know? is, there, is there a Reservoir Dogs musical coming out? That uh, no, but I did a production that was called oh. Reservoir Dolls. And I played, uh, it was all with obviously, the <gasps> I played, I played blonde, so I got to do the whole like stuck in the middle of you. And... Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. Yeah, you get to awesome. Sort of, yes, not just as a performer, but as an audience, you get to to really experience stuff that I'd be like, that was cool for that two hours, and now I we can move on. We can <laughs> move on. <laughs> Don't need to feel that ever again. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Now, 
This was a little at odds with some of his fellow critics, as many believe that the aim of the arts should be a connection with beauty specifically and or a purgation of emotions, particularly bad or harmful ones. So they wanted to get rid of those bad ones where Dennis was like, look, just explore them all. And yeah, yeah, I kind of agree with him in that, but yeah, I mean, Dennis's theories came from his grand tour of the Alps, chronicling that journey he experienced, quote, pleasure to the eye as music is to the ear. It's a very nice little thing. Like, yeah, you see some pretty amazing landscapes as you're traveling through the Alps. Yeah. But he also wrote that it was, quote, mingled with horrors and sometimes almost with despair. What? (laughs) A trip through the Alps. (laughs) I mean, was this like D&D out of croissants? (laughs) What happens? You know, my luggage failed from the carriage. What? <laughs> that was devastating. They didn't have oat milk and I'm dairy and <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe a bear across the path. I don't know. Whatever. Now, while his literary criticism was what he came to be best known for, Dennis was also a playwright. And the production of Appius and Virginia that debuted at Drury Lane on February 5th, 1709 was Dennis's play. If you don't know the story of Appius and Virginia, oh, here we go. (laughs) It's more or less about a Roman aristocrat named Appius who rises to some power and tries to use that power to win over a woman he is pursuing, who's like, just not that into him. (laughs) In his pursuit, Appius has other noblemen of title discredited, and he has Virginia, the woman he's pursuing, put on a mock trial so she can be enslaved by his friend Marcus and thus be forced into Appius's care. Cool guy, cool guy. But before Virginia can be remanded to Marcus, her father, Virginus, grants her wish to die instead of being in the care of Appius, so he stabs her. Oh my God. Uh Uh-huh, yep. Appius is then seen for the criminal he is and is put in shackles with Marcus and each of them are given swords. Well, Appius uses his sword to kill himself and Marcus drops his sword and falls to his knees and begs for mercy, but he's then sent to the executioner. The end. Okay. (laughs) That that sounds like a a whole bunch of bummer, man. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a tragedy. It's definitely a tragedy. It's a tragedy, but I just... I'm wondering what the point was. You know? Yeah, yeah. I don't I mind mean, seeing shows where there's where like really rough stuff happens like that, but that just sounds like trauma porn to me. Yes, yes, agreed. Like I can't see a possible thing out of that. Like you know, it's sometimes we look at our tragic heroes, and we go, "Man, I actually kind of want things to work out for you, but you're going about it in the wrong way." You know, you want Hamlet to get his revenge on his uncle because his uncle did a really terrible thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, he like, he drives Ophelia mad. He kills Laertes. He kills Polonius. It's like, okay, just take out at least one of those things and I might feel a little bit better. Right, right. (laughs) Wow, I talk about whatever the theater of the sublime there. That's just like. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Now, uh, the story was more effectively put into a play by the Renaissance playwright John Webster, but of course, as is custom. Yep, there you go. 
Now, as is custom, these plot lines can be dredged up every now and again, and then written into a new play, which is what Dennis did. Okay. Yeah. But for Dennis's production and the crux of the episode, a new technical element was developed a new method of producing the th- sound of thunder on stage. Oh. Woo! <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, while some sources claim to know exactly what Dennis's machine was, others are sort of ambiguous. The most popular theory is that Dennis either invented or improved upon the thunder sheet, which mm-hmm. is a method still used today. Now, for those of you that don't know, just picture a retractable pull-down window shade. Now picture that this is not retractable and the fabric of the shade is composed of kind of a thick sheet of metal and you get the idea. You shake the handle of the shade at the bottom and you shake it backstage and a really effective thunder sound is produced, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) My older boy is really into horror movies right now and I'm going easy on him and we watch Scream 2. And, and Nev Campbell's character goes to college and she studies theater and she's in a production of, oh God, I think it's Agamemnon. And um, she's playing Cassandra and somebody, and there's a thunder sheet backstage. And I'm like, Mike, that's been in existence for hundreds of years. Look at that. <laughs> a <laughs> side note for your, like how deep are you going to go in? Have you ever seen that movie Audition? No. Oh, it is. Wait till, Ooh. how old's your kid? He's thir- he's thirteen again. Be fourteen. Oh yeah, no, 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 man. No, 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 no. We've it's, we've gone anyway. Yeah, we've gone pretty tame. We've gone okay. pretty tame. He has seen Nightmare on Elm Street, the original nineteen eighty four. He's like, "What's so scary about that?" I'm like, "Dude, okay, never mind." <laughs> <laughs> now, other methods of this thunder production have been suggested as well. One is that of a thunder drum. Have you seen this? Uh-uh, I've never seen that. So this is kind of like the device at a bingo hall, which holds all the balls in it. And, oh. and you know, it's like turned around by a crank tumbling all the bingo balls inside, right? Yeah. Now, for a thunder drum, the same idea is used, but the outside of the cylinder is made of wood and the inside contains either several wooden or metal balls. So when you crank the thing, it just sounds like rumbling and, you know, you always get kind of a random effect. So yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of what happens. Now, yet even another method, and this is also suggested to be Dennis's machine, is to have a large metal bowl, like really big, like, uh, gosh, I'm trying to say like three feet across or so, that -hmm. contains a few metal balls. And the ball is held in the hands and the balls are rolled around inside the bowl to elicit the sounds. Okay. I'm like, so that's kind of what may have been suggested. But this is really neat. And I want to know if you actually got to experience this at all. One method that I really appreciate, and I saw the video on this while doing my research, is the thunder run. Have you heard of this? What's that? Okay. So basically, this is a system of large gutters built above the the ceiling of a theater space, mainly above the audience. And large wooden balls, maybe about the size of like a cantaloupe, are rolled down these gutters. And at random points, there are cleats that are built into the walls of the gutters. So they like bounce off these cleats and keep rolling. So it makes really randomized sounds and and intermittent booming and stuff. Sounds (laughs) so so cool. Yeah. So when the balls are rolled down the gutters, the effect of rolling theater from the back of the house to the front of the house is really visceral. (laughs) I can imagine because, you know, in the movies now where they, you know, they, 
Oh yeah, surround sound, sound. Yeah, but that must have been so like deeply frightening and revolutionary for those folks that just. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Woo. I mean, at least they got over the whole witchcraft thing at that, yeah. by that point. <laughs> we, we were doing it over here. We were just behind the times. Okay. Now, as you were su- possibly suggesting earlier, yeah, Appius in Virginia, a little bit of a bummer. And it didn't exactly turn out the way Dennis might have liked it to. After only three days of disappointing ticket sales and poor written and word of mouth reviews, Drury Lane canceled the remaining performances before the fourth performance could even begin. Ooh. <laughs> That's like scary on Broadway level, like smash. Uh-huh. Yep, you're done. You're done. Um, <laughs> here's a quote <laughs> that came from some of these reviews. The play was judged to be ponderous in the extreme and downright boring <laughs> I mean, it was with all like the stabbing and stuff the saying. stabbing and the you know we're trying to trick this girl into being a slave so we're going to set up a mock trial and and she's going please just kill me and her father has to do it and people are just like yawn <laughs> i think i've just made lisa aspirate some popcorn there uh, <laughs> Hold that thought. Got it. Now, I I could mention how this also had to do with some of the political strife between the Tory and the Whig parties at the time. And Anne had done very little to ease the connection between the two, or the contention between the two parties. It's almost like America today. What? (laughs) So while Dennis was strongly on the Whig side of Parliament, his rivals and critics were more of the Tory affiliation. And took to writing about it. <laughs> so, nonetheless, Dennis's play was canceled, despite the new Thunder device and the audience's extreme excitement over new technical achievements. So even that couldn't see, save the show. And I'm going to say it, I'm going to say it, because we're just talking about the play. A production of Macbeth was soon to follow. <gasps> they just conjured it out of nowhere. Now... <laughs> Perhaps it was out of like an effort to go, okay, no hard feelings, or maybe it was just because he was, you know, a literary critic and he was trying to advance the field of literary criticism. John Dennis purchased a ticket and attended the opening night performance. Halfway through the play or partway through the play, presumably during one of the witch's incantation scenes, Dennis heard a very familiar sound. Oh. <laughs> the thunder device that he had invented was being used for this play. Man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, okay, so we, I, you know, he's, he's not my favorite dude, but I would have been mad. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, whether it was Dennis who just forgot to leave with his new toy when he was kicked out of the theater, or perhaps there was no patent on the device at the time, or perhaps it was just forgotten when he left. Nonetheless, the company which had expelled Dennis and his play was now using his device to delight audiences with a play that is one of the most popular plays in English language and always sells out and runs for a long time. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a brand yep. new Mackers movie out right now. Right, the Denzel one. Yeah. Oh God. Upon hearing this sound, reports suggest that John Dennis stood up during the performance and shouted, "Damn them! They will not let my play run, but they will steal my thunder." <gasps> Which has been credited as the origin of this phrase in the English vernacular. No way! <laughs> <laughs> now there's been, yep, there's another so iteration cool. of this. Yeah, there's another iteration of this that has been written down. That is my thunder, by God! The villains will play my thunder, but not my play! Well, same thing. <laughs> Either way you look at it, this outburst did somewhat create a legacy for John Dennis. His name may not be listed among the literary greats, but his phrase is permanently etched into the collective consciousness of popular culture in the right? English language. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I even used it this summer. Like I, that, wow, that's amazing. And that's something. And it was in regard to actual theft of actual thunder. Right, and theft of creative uh, output. Right. 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 <laughs> now, even still, whether or not Dennis actually uttered the phrase or whether he did so as described by interrupting the production of a play, it's still uncertain whether it happened or whether or not it may have been the byproduct of a debate in print between John Dennis and rival critic Alexander Pope. Ooh. <laughs> I mean... I read so much and I'm like, okay, I, I can't include all of this. So what I'll say right. is if you're interested in looking up some of this at the beginning of the century, at the, at the beginning of the 17th century, I would equate these critics writing about each other in print and publishing these things very similar to how the drag queens treat each other in RuPaul's Drag Race in the dressing room. <laughs> sometimes they're incredibly complimentary and helpful sometimes they're like bitch i don't like what color you're wearing and i wear that color not you and right. i do it way better i mean just oh they were so catty and it was great now in the years following the cancellation of appius virginia dennis put down his playwrights quill but picked up the critics quill full time in a series of essays pamphlets articles books etc Dennis and Pope slung barbs at each other in print with the aim of either impressing readers with their own individual literary prowesses <laughs> or simply pointing out the flaws in their respective rivals or both. <laughs> now, in the end, I'm going to suggest that Pope won the upper hand. In 1729, 21 years after Appius in Virginia, Pope published his epic poem, The Dunciad. Yes, Dunce and Iliad. <laughs> oh my God. In which he openly and often flagrantly criticized his contemporaries as writing works that would gradually make humanity more and more stupid. <laughs> That's not at all uh, applicable today, is it? No, 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 no. no. We definitely don't have any... <laughs> puff pieces that are clickbait 
I mean, I'm just imagining if this was modern times, this all would have been on Twitter. Like they would have been oh, oh, God. back and mm-hmm. forth on Twitter, right? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> now in the Dunciad, Pope had this to say about Dennis. Whether Mr. Dennis was the inventor of that improvement, the thunder machine, right? I know not. But it is certain that being once at a tragedy of a new author, he fell into a great passion at hearing some and cried, death, that is my thunder. (laughs) And even more still, with Shakespeare's nature or with Johnson's art, let others aim. Tis yours to shake the soul with thunder rumbling from the mustard bowl. (laughs) So this is what he's trying to say, like, oh, so you had a bowl backstage and you thought that would be impressive. Good job, Dennis. Right. (laughs) Now, Dennis never really reached the heights he had before Appius and Virginia, as he had fallen out of favor or engaged in written quarrels with pretty much all of his contemporaries. His final years saw him run out of money from his annuities, and Dennis ended up quite impoverished. A benefit performance, a variety show of sorts, was held for Dennis at the Haymarket Theater in 1733, but Dennis died in January 1734 before he could really enjoy any of the profits from the performance. Oh, that's like an old-timey GoFundMe. Yeah, <laughs> And it absolutely was. And the funny thing is, two of his critics, including Pope, Pope wrote a prologue for the performance. And even in it, it was kind of like a roast. (laughs) (laughs) And then another guy that uh, both Pope and Dennis had criticized performed for the show. So when it all came down to it, they were there for each other, even if they it was were like mm, mm-hmm. 21 years of nasty little sniping back and forth. Or they were there for a paycheck as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, that too. Epilogue. A thunder run is still intact in the old Vic in London. And the thunder sheet is still one of the most widely used practical effects in technical theater. And that is the story of John Dennis's thunder. (laughs) That is so cool. (laughs) And you can see though, like, I feel bad about like, okay, I had to drag everybody through a whole bunch of crap before that. But (laughs) I mean, just that one story, it's like, you have to understand the atmosphere around it. Like just all around it. They needed a hit at the theater. Why did they need a hit at the theater? Oh, because it had been shut down for six weeks. Why was it shut down for six weeks? Well, there was this thing with Queen Anne. Why was Queen Anne so crazy about mourning? Well, she had lost 17 pregnancies. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, it took a lot to make that all come to fruition. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. excited about that Thunderbolt, though. I'm I'm hoping to get uh, across the pond, as it were, in the fall to do a theater festival there, and I will make it a point to go. Ooh, yeah. Look at yeah. that bowl. Yeah, well, I mean, the Thunder Run is those gutters. The Thunder uh, Run. That's yeah, and that's, I mean, just, I, I, and they've really made it like a bit of an attraction when you go to the old Vic. Like you, you know, if you take a tour of the space or anything, I mean, yeah. and the thing is still functional and it's still like, they don't, shy away from using it because it's good old sturdy craftsmanship right <laughs> like how many plays can we get thunder in I, right. 
we are the thunder house right <laughs> but you know you're right like i love this idea of being so catty on social media <laughs> and uh, like oh god what was it it was uh, episode eight i talk about the incident in astor place there were these two actors in and they played Macbeth. uh one was american one was british and they would often quarrel with each other or like their audiences would quarrel with each other. These two guys hardly had any, anything to do with each other. Right. But, you know, I kind of relate it to like this whole thing with Dwayne Johnson and Vin Diesel and this whole fast and the furious nonsense. (laughs) Oh, I don't know anything about that. Oh my God. Oh, they got serious beef. Two beefcakes got serious beef. (laughs) Um, Like, yeah. Uh, you know, Dwayne Johnson at one point is like, um, I don't like the way these things are run. I kind of want to go do my own thing. And, and Vin Diesel is like, oh, come on, we're family. And, you know, <laughs> it's all that nonsense. And so I guess just recently uh, there was a final smackdown from like uh, Dwayne Johnson's Instagram account. It's like, uh, I ain't doing it. In response to Vin Diesel putting out a tweet saying something like, hey, my kids are really excited about their Uncle Dwayne coming back and doing the show again. Just Um, totally like throwing his kids out there and being uh, like, you're going to ruin this if you don't do it, Uncle Dwayne. (laughs) I'm glad to see we have not evolved in any single way as humans. It's just the medium has changed. Right. I'm pretty right. sure the ancient Greeks were out there like, I don't know, carving it into something. Like, <laughs> guess, who, guess who's a jerk? <laughs> well, I did talk about that in some other episode. Euripides was like put out because he made drama seem like more of a human problem instead of the gods working in the world, you know, where that was the thing. Everybody was just like, no, the gods are are responsible for everything but then Euripides writes Medea and she's like really really fighting with herself about geez do I kill my children or don't I kill my children (laughs) (laughs) oh boy (laughs) and people are going no no, no. if the gods say you do it you do it Uh, yeah (laughs) just ask Abraham oh well that worked anyway oh man well I hope you enjoyed that Lisa (laughs) good little chunk of some history and now you know oh, why I we say steal of thunder i i loved it that was fascinating and i appreciate that you did such a deep dive like uh, oh wow yeah. <laughs> right yeah i mean and thank you mike again for uh suggesting this one to me i mean he's wrote me a little instagram post hey there's this is where steal your thunder comes from i'm like oh cool i start researching it and i'm like whoa okay one there's not enough here for just one story but there's a lot of things that go into this story right so yeah yeah. but cool well lisa thank you again for being on this show i hope all your future programs work out for you and i would love to have you back sometime um and i think you might be the first one in my new episode format the (gasps) theater horror story (laughs) so my friends number one Woo! So, my friends and listeners, look forward to that in a future episode format of Euripides Humanities, the Theater History Podcast. But for this episode, I'm signing off. My name is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming. I'll be back to you in another two weeks with another cool story. But until then, I will see you at intermission. <laughs>